continue the work within us. It's just fantastic to, to look towards God, to worship God, to be in His presence. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for gracing us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for loving us. And God, we realize that now the focus changes from you to us. And now as we look at the word, Father, that word comes to change us. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and continue what you've begun in saving us, in creating us, in making us, in guiding us. We submit before you, Father. We submit. We humble ourselves. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and teach us, guide us, change us, transform us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Be seated there. If you want to turn in your Bibles a moment to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. Do you know, as as I travel around from country to country and nation to nation around the world, I find that that very few people disagree about the last days. These are the last days. Amen. It's the end times. But where I I hit a brick wall and is this. Okay, well, if you believe it's the last days, what are you doing about it? (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. But... If I say to you, do you believe that these are the last days and everything's about to wind up? The automatic PC answer is yes. But then if I ask another question, okay then, what are you doing about that? What practical changes have you made in your life if that's what you believe? Are you with me? If if I believe the building's on fire, right, I'll get out of the building. And so when people say to me that I do believe it's the last days, to be honest with you, I, you know, <laughs> what kind of belief is that? If it's a belief that doesn't lead to action, really drastic action, then I don't really believe it, do I? I'm just giving a, a nod to something that I academically believe, that I intellectually believe, but the reality of the consequences of my life, of me being actually ready to meet my Savior, are my actions lining up with that belief? Answer? The answer is no. The answer is not just no for individuals. I'm very sorry to say it's also no for churches. It's also no for denominations, for organizations. It's just no. And that's not good. If we truly, truly believe and accept that these are the last days and our Savior is at the door, then there would definitely be radical preparation, is the way I guess Scripture would put it. You know, Noah built an ark, didn't he? (laughs) Noah believed. Noah believed that there was a flood coming, and so he got to work. It took a long time. But Noah believed when everyone else ignored it. And Noah was ready on the day, wasn't he? How many others were ready? Not many. Eight, wasn't it? Not many. Right? And what's that a picture of? The rapture. So, you know, the the, the judgment of God comes. The ark rises up. The ark is the church. And God, we will rise up. We who are saved rise up to meet the Lord in the air. Right? It's an Old Testament picture of the second coming of Christ, the judgment on the world is the flood. How many got raptured? Very few. Okay? So it's a bit of a prophetic warning to you and to me. Get in the boat. 
Okay? Get in the boat. Get ready. Believe and start to prepare. Noah prepared. In the upper room, they were promised an outpouring, weren't they? Jesus said, wait. Jesus said, wait. And they took that word, how tempting it would be just to run out and get on with it, like we said last week, right? How tempting it must have been for Peter and those guys, 120 people in that room, 2 million Jews outside, Christ is gone. How tempting it would have been for Peter particularly to say, do you know what, guys, let's just go outside. Let's just go out and preach the gospel. What would have happened to them? Yeah, they would have gone in their own strength, right. And so just over the last few weeks as I've come here, many of you, look at me a moment, many of you are saying to me, what's the future, what's the program, what's the plan? Where are we going? So friend, absolutely I have gone before God on your behalf and asked the same question. But the answer I got was not a strategy. The answer I got was not some plan. The answer I got was about you. About you. I want, I want my people back. That's what God said to me. Go and tell them that. Go and tell them I want my people back. Amen. He wants your heart back. And the fact is, they had to wait in that upper room until they were ready to receive. I mean, stuff is happening in those 52 days. It's not nothing. Those men are being changed in that time. That time is critical. For God to pour out His Spirit on them, things had to change within them, right? No doubt they were 52 days of preparation. Of analysis, of looking at themselves, of repentance, of change, of getting ready. You're, you're a cup, you are. You're a vessel. And this most definitely, if we believe that these are the last days, and I believe we do academically, but I pray that God brings a revelation of that upon us. And that revelation is the only thing that will bring us action. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Academic ascent is going to get you nowhere, my friend. Absolutely nowhere. Nowhere. But the revelation of the day and the hour and the, the season at which God has trusted us to live has to prompt change. And that change starts with us getting ourselves ready like Noah, getting ourselves ready like the leaders, the apostles, the disciples in that upper room. And so we've begun this new year with that attitude in our hearts, asking God to give us a clean sheet. If you look at the life of David, David ended up, remember, the fire came down from heaven, right? Again and again and again and again. But if you look through the Psalms, David explains the process that brought that fire down, right? The process. First of all, he would repent of everything he knew, didn't he? Psalm after Psalm, Lord, I, I know I'm like this and I know I'm like that. But still no fire, right? And in many Psalms, he would put himself under the spotlight and he would say, Okay, Lord, why are we still not breaking through? Search my heart, O God, and reveal to me things that I don't know, right? And like I said last week about my dad, when I know that I'm not breaking through, I've repented of everything I know. Now I need to go before God. Because there's something I'm missing. I need to be quiet a moment. Or we're not going to enter that fire. Right? So David repented of everything he knew about. But still not there. Then he goes before God. And God reveals to him his own heart. Right? And then we see fire. Scary. Scary, really. So that's what we've begun to do. To look at ourselves in these first few weeks, look at ourselves, analyze our own heart, repent of whatever you know you need to repent of. And then in these Sunday mornings and hopefully through the weeks, days, you begin to take time, quiet time with God, and just be quiet a moment. 
Just be quiet. Just be still. Just be still. And listen, like Habakkuk said, I will listen. I will be silent. And I will listen and hear what he might say to me. As I mentioned last week, when I did that, I got a shock. I, the last thing on earth for me was something with my dad. It's the last thing in the world I ever would have expected. All I know is that something is not, something's blocking me, and I need to remove it. I need to get it out of my system. Amen? I believe God has more for me, and it's not God's fault. Right? It's not God's fault. Me. I'm the problem. So show me what the problem is, Lord. That requires a willingness in you. It requires a, an openness in you. Uh, and you're going to have to find that openness or you're going to get frustrated, folks. Aren't you? <laughs> you're going to end up, you know what it, you know what it is? It's the worst of both worlds. You're going to end up unhappy in this life and lacking reward in the next life. That's not good. You may as well make your mind up who it is you follow and whether it's with a whole heart and all your life you're going to follow him, right? And it, all the more so because of the hour in we, which we live. So when, when they saw Jesus, right, he was working miracles and power and signs and wonders, the likes of which they had never experienced before. They go to him and they say, teach us how to do that. And that's where we get the Our Father. And right at the beginning of the Our Father, as we saw last week, he goes straight to the issue of forgiveness. So I have to accept that. I have to look at my own heart and realize that unforgiveness is a major blockage. And I, I hope, I know I'm being provocative in that when I asked you last week. Just eyes forward. Stay with me, folks. When I asked you last week about, is a person, if I do not forgive someone their sins, are my sins forgiven? No. Still weak. <laughs> and if my sins are not forgiven, am I going to heaven or hell? Right. I am deliberately being provocative because I want to dig beneath the surface and I want to know if you, believe, if you actually believe the word. That's what I want to know about you. I want you to find yourself. Because the day that we start to say, oh, well, it doesn't actually mean that. The day that we start to shift off the word is a dangerous day. Oh, yes, it is. Because if we question that, what else are we going to question? Right? Correct? So I want you to find where your belief actually is. And it needs to be on the God-breathed scriptures that we have here. Because if we don't start from that place, we're going nowhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You need to have this foundation. And when you get presented with a question like that, you're finding yourself. You're actually finding out, you're beginning to understand what you believe and what you don't believe. Are you with me? And it's not just a question of unforgiveness. It's a thousand questions. Do I really believe that he's the son of God? Do I really believe that this word will work for me? So I want to get all the, you know, bump off the surface and get down to the rock in there, and when you ask a question like that, boom, the spade hits the rock. And then you have a decision to make. Do I really believe the Word of God? And I want you to face that challenge and face that issue and make your own mind up. For some, they will question. For some, they will turn to the left and turn to the right. Well, you need to, it's a, it's a, it's a personal decision. It's not something anybody else can make for you. So we looked at unforgiveness. Today I want to look at another primary issue, an issue that it begins in Genesis actually, of my motivations and the things that drive me. Whoa. Key point, KP, at the, just under the heading. Key point number one. If my motives are wrong, then everything else is wrong. If my motives are wrong, God cannot receive my work and there will be no eternal reward for my work. Could I have my first slide up there please, Ray? Thank you. I looked at this picture the other day. I thought it was interesting. Look at this. Nice house. Would you like to live in a house like that? Right. See this man here? He built that. He's a fool, actually. He's a fool. Yeah. He's currently in the high court, and they're, they're going to either put him in prison, but he has to dismantle it. He has to ever, all his work, he has to take the entire thing down because he built it without planning permission. Yeah. 
Now, if you spend your life, how long has that taken him? Here he is, he's done this. He actually put bales of hay stacked up high so no one could see him working. Oh, dear, dear, dear. (laughs) All that labor, all that expense, and you didn't, before you began to build, you didn't ask yourself the fundamental question about the law of the land. Well, that is just, he probably thinks he's smart, isn't he? He probably thinks he's going to outwit the system. No, sir. I'm afraid the law of the land applies to you as well. And it's going to apply to everybody. So don't waste your life's work. Unless the Lord builds the house, you're going to labor in vain. And Scripture has a lot of warnings about that. I want to talk about what's motivating you. What drives you to do the things you do? To pause a moment and think about it. Why do I do what I do? What's making me do that? And realize that God has very strict criteria, as you'll see in a moment, for, my, for how I work, the way I work. And he's the architect. We're just the builders. So we have to build what he gives us permission to build. And if he doesn't give permission, guess what? It's coming down. Oh, yes, it is. So I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my energy. Next slide, please, Ray. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my energy. Even though in the eyes of men, or even in my own head. (laughs) In my own head, I think I'm doing really well. I mean, I'm ahead of everybody. So, so, so focused on the work that we take our eyes off the Lord. So focused on that, so passionate in what we're doing that we, real, we forget about the rule book. It doesn't matter. Just let's get across the line. But the problem is it does matter. Does he win? <laughs> no. No. Do you know why he doesn't win? Because he doesn't ha- he's not carrying the same burden as the other horses. He's, he thinks he's found an easier way. It's far quicker this way. Let's just go this way. Huh? But the fact is, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not justice, and God is a God of justice. So there's no reward for this. You must carry the same weight, as it were, the same cross, if you like, and do things God's way, or face the consequences of that on Judgment Day. So I'm afraid it's one size fits all, one book applies to all, the rules will not be changed, and I need to begin with that end in mind. I need to begin what I'm doing every day, what I'm doing with my life one day, I have to present it to Jesus Christ, and he will analyze that, so I better build him what he wants. I better be giving him what the book here tells us he wants. And if I don't, my motivations have gone wrong. And I didn't even realize it. I can be surrounded by people with dodgy hearts, dodgy intent, dodgy reasonings, and not even realize it. This issue is important. As anything in Genesis, you'll find all the really key doctrines tied up in Genesis in one way or another. And this issue is right there in chapter 4, verse 3. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Now, you know this story? They brought sacrifices to God. In fact, let me read verse 4. Sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the flock of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, look at what's happening here. Both of these men, Cain and Abel, they know the rules. They both know what they should bring. They should bring fat portions. So one of them makes the sacrifice and brings what was asked for. But the other one thinks, well, the vegetables are cheaper. And he brings in 
an offering that's not acceptable and God rejects one person's work and accepts the other because the other involved the key word, sacrifice. True sacrifice. Now, I, I want you to see the subtle point that's hidden behind all this. Cain still wanted to bring an offering. Cain didn't not bring an offering. It's like Cain going to church. Cain's still in church, right? He's still going. So what's driving him? It's religion, see? They both want to go. One of them goes to church, if you like, correctly, bringing a genuine offering, a genuine sacrifice. But Cain still wants to participate in the offering, but he doesn't want to make the sacrifice. Are you with me? And that is the very, the heart of the point in you and me I want to get to. That's why it's in the beginning of the book. Why do we do what we do? Only God can see the heart, the real heart. God sees my motives. He sees what's driving me. And the sooner at the beginning of this walk, the sooner I get that clear and right before him, then I can be confident that my work is not wasted. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at this a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. It's talking about what you're going to face up ahead. What I'm going to face up ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, cheap things, right? their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will reveal it and bring it into light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet will be saved, but even as one escaping through the flames. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for being saved that I don't think about reward. I'm just happy to be saved. I'm grateful to God for... Amen? You know the story? However, the person in Scripture who talks more about reward than anyone else is Christ himself. Constantly trying to bring us back to that point. And I think it's not important, but I have to put that belief down. And I have to say, Christ says it's important, so I'm going to come back to this point, and I'm going to work towards a heavenly reward. I'm going to do that. Right? It's like a discipline, even though it's not natural to us, I guess, to do that. Our question today to you and to me, to myself, am I driven? Am I driven by worldly things or am I called? And you make an analysis of yourself, not anybody else. Think about yourself. Am I? What what am I, Lord? Why do I do what I do? Right? How do I know if I'm driven? Point one. Well, Driven people are gratified by accomplishment. It's one goal after another goal. It's one title after another title. Right? And and those things, to be honest, they are very, very disappointing. Because titles don't last, do they? They don't last. And achievements don't last. They're disappointing, especially for a Christian. Now, the world may go on in satisfaction in things like that. But as a believer, you've always got that inner awareness. This doesn't act. There's no value in this. Driven people are gratified only by more and more and more. By accomplishment and achievement and recognition. And they have no pleasure in the process. I was out walking with Pastor Joe yesterday. And I was just saying to him, you know, I, I, I thank God that I enjoy the process. I know we have a long way to go, Pastor. We have a lot to do. But I'll be honest, and this is the truth. The distance and the task does not bother me. Because I enjoy the process. It's not the accomplishment. Praise the Lord for those things. But it's the actual laboring with Christ that has to be enjoyed. Should be enjoyed. So it is a real telltale sign if you're chasing something else and then something else and then something else, sooner or later, you're going to have to wise up to that. Right? <laughs> you're going to have to realize that it, you, 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 it's a rainbow. 
you're just chasing a rainbow and there's nothing there. There's nothing at the end of it. And you need to stop that. Don't be driven. Secondly, be under point one there. Driven people have little regard for integrity. And I could give you a thousand examples on this where, you know, compromising scripture or compromising moral values or any values just to achieve the goal. Well, that's not acceptable. That's a work that will be burned up, right? And if you're going to labor, you may as well make it count, right? If we're going to do the work, we may as well do it right. And we're going to be like this guy up here. And his house will be burned up. C, limited people skills. When a person is driven, people are to be used. They're there to be used and discarded like a disposable razor, right? They're dispensable, usable, disposable. It's a telltale sign. And I'm sure in your workplace you meet plenty of people like that. People who are driven. And we've got to be different. And D, under point one, often a bad temper. When you find yourself not achieving certain goals or not hitting certain things that you've set for yourself that maybe God never gave you, temper and anger, ultimately it's anger, it's just the disappointment that you didn't do or achieve what you thought, but that's a telltale sign that you're actually being driven internally by motives in your heart that really need to be dealt with at an early stage That's why it's in Genesis. That's why it's in Genesis. And God says, just stop a moment and just think a little bit longer before you rush out to that field. Think a little bit longer about what's driving you to behave like this or to achieve like this. Because actually, it's the wrong road. It's the wrong motive. And you're going to end up disappointed. And Christ wants to save you from that. By getting your heart right, right at the beginning. Right now. I've listed some things there about what can drive people, and we could spend weeks on this alone. Some people are driven by guilt instead of thankfulness. And this bothers me. I've been working with a guy just like this for some time, and I've still not succeeded. Uh, You need to let me finish at this point. This guy is the most helpful individual you could ever meet. If somebody's got a problem, man, he's there. If if somebody says they need help, he is the guy who will respond immediately, right? He's always there, always helpful, always, you know, that's his nature. Now, I've got a little bit of a problem with that. I'm very glad. I've told him so. I am very happy that you are... Helping people. Do you know where I've got the problem? You never say no. That kind of bugs me a little bit. Jesus says go the extra mile. I'm very happy to go the extra mile. Where I have the problem is someone who always has to go the extra mile. Okay? Sometimes people ask me and I say, do you know what? I can't do that. I can't do that because I'm too busy. I can't do that because I'm doing this. But I question your motive. What's actually driving you? What's pushing you? Are you with me? There's something else behind that. It just doesn't add up to me. So some people are driven by guilt. It's a fact. And people who are driven by guilt, they can't do enough. Because they're actually trying to make up for what's in them in a way that they never can. They can never make up. I tell you where you'll see this big time Singapore. It's It's the culture. You'll see it in huge measure there, where the work ethic, as it's called, but really a lot of the work can be driven behind the scenes, you know, subconsciously, subliminally. People are behaving in ways and not taking the time or the pause for thought to ask themselves, why do I do the things I do? Guilt definitely drives people. Secondly, fear drives people instead of obedience. And that's where you can have mixed, it's hard to, Put it, you can have mixed ministry, you know? Like say someone's up here leading the worship and they're, they're frightened of God, you know? In the wrong sense. There's a holy fear of God, but then there's a fear because of sin, isn't there? And that's got to do with judgment, right? If, you, if you're conscious of sin in your heart and you're frightened of God in, the, in, in, in a right sense, but a wrong sense, if you know what I mean, 
that can lead to what I would call mixed ministry. It's a mixed spirit. The person is afraid or preaching. Somebody's preaching. But they're actually afraid in the wrong sense. Not a holy fear. But they're intimidated by themselves. Are you with me? Yeah? That's driving them. It's actually driving them. Fear of God is driving them. Guilt is driving them. Does guilt drive me instead? Does fear drive me instead of obedience to God? Well, I need to get back and look at my vessel. And the third one there, people are driven by low self-esteem. This would have been my biggest motivator. I come from a family of nine brothers and sisters, all very high achievers, like I shared with you, and then there was me. <laughs> so my mother used to envy just the family, say, oh yeah, and then there's Michael, <laughs> right? It just wasn't my thing. It just wasn't my thing. As a child, I'm not stupid, right? I'm not stupid. As a child, I would go to school. Listen to this. Maybe 10, 11. I would go before anybody got there, often waiting at the gate for the caretaker to come. And he would get about half seven. Do you know what I was doing? Copying my dad. We used to go to church and pray in the morning. Catholic church. And I would be waiting at the gate and the caretaker that guy's crazy. Look at this boy. <laughs> but I would go in and I would go down by the canteen where no one would go. And I would just sit there and pray. 10, 11, 12. Just sit and pray. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. I told you before, my dad, nine children. Some of you only have one or two. You don't learn as much when you've got one or two as when you've got nine. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you see, my eldest sister, scholarship to Oxford, right? I told you. She's a doctor of scholastic philosophy. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> and then all the others, one after the other. And I'm so young, see, in comparison to the eldest sister, because I'm the youngest. By the time she was finishing, I was just being raised. My, oh, my, the nine children changed the way you raise children. So I'm the only one of the nine that my father treated differently from everyone else. I was the only one. On Sunday afternoon, he would always go for a walk. And at some point in his mind, he said, Michael, come with me. And we would walk in the park. And he didn't talk to me about Oxford University. He talked to me about God. And as he saw the end result of the world and its systems... He looked at me as a young boy and he thought, I'm not going to make the same mistake with this one. I'm going to change him. I'm going to put into him what's actually important. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. But even with that input, the, the, the damage done, I guess, to my esteem, my self-esteem, was severe. It was severe. I also had a speech impediment and that was crippling. So I found it difficult to, to achieve anything in terms of employment or anything else. I went out into the world and I went a bit crazy. I just went mad because I felt to some degree dysfunctional, relationally dysfunctional. Um, and I felt I couldn't achieve what I was maybe meant to be. So I went off the rails. And it wasn't until I got saved. When I was born again, the world changed for me. Now, instead of being a nobody, I felt like I was somebody. Let me finish. <laughs> no, not amen. <laughs> not amen. So, this is what happens, you see. This is what happens. Say, Does anybody want to give their life to the Lord? And someone walks forward and everybody claps. And the per Who's the hero here? The person walks up and says, oh, I'm such a good person, I gave my life to Christ. Actually, you're such a bad person, you gave your life to Christ. Let's get this straight. Yeah? And so what happened to me was I got saved into an atmosphere like that, and that did my self-esteem no good. It felt good, because I began to get the recognition of people. And I loved it. It was something I'd never had. Never had before. I began to evangelize, and that was very successful. 
And people began to recognize that and see that and appreciate that. And I became, if you like, important in my own eyes. You with me? But And all the time thinking that this was good, thinking that this was right, that my self-esteem was being dealt with. But after a few years of behaving like that, you know, you learn. You learn that it's just not right. It doesn't work. And I changed, went from this church to that church and eventually found a very, very good balance within VFC. <laughs> VFC will sort you out pretty quick. Uh, oh, yeah. Very good balance. You don't want it. I don't like it. I need it. When I first saw Rick, I'll never forget it. Rick walked in the room in Dublin. And that was my instant reaction. He hadn't even spoken to me yet. I thought, see him? I don't like him. Yeah, I don't like him. Yeah. Do you know what, though? I need him. I need him. I just know. I don't even know him, but I know I need him. And whatever it is he's going to do to me, he's going to change me. That's what he's going to do. I can just feel it. I was a bit frightened, you know. Stay away from me. Yeah. I needed that change. And to be honest, that was the beginning of the destruction of man's self-esteem, which is false and hollow. The applause of people is very shallow, friends. Very shallow. The same people who lay down the palm leaves crucified the Lord three days later. And if you rest your life on the appreciation of people or the applause of men, I promise you, you are up for a big disappointment. And right at the get-go, let me tell you something, just so you know and you understand me. Not a cell in my body is here to please you. Okay? I'm not here to please you. Amen. Very quiet. How can I, how can I think like that? I can't think like it. It's not in my nature. It's been driven out of my nature. Completely and utterly. So I don't, in that sense, when you say you don't care, people, I don't mean I don't care. Of course I care. I wouldn't be here. I care. Of course I care. But what I mean is I don't care what you think of it or me because I have a higher rule over my life. And it ain't you. It's God. And this is my life. I've only got one. I've only got one. And I'll face him, not you, when I die. Yeah. And he'll ask me what I built. So I know what the book says, and that's what I'll be following, come what may. That's how it works, folks. That sounds harsh, it sounds hard, but it's actually the only truth that we're ever going to get. Amen. 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 So don't put men first in your life, and don't be driven by self-esteem. You know, look, when you're a young man, and you come into ministry for the first time, you can get a buzz out of ministry, Right? Or you're leading worship here. You do a great job, say, right? And people come up like they did this morning. Pat to Timmy say, oh, well done. Let's give the worship team. You can get a buzz out of that, can't you? That's okay. As a young man. <laughs> That's okay. Because you're only beginning in ministry. And just like a child, you know, the, the child, you know, tidies his room. You say, well done. That's fantastic. But if it's a 40-year-old and they tidy your room, come on. It's not fantastic. <laughs> So, you need to move on from that. There is a place for it with young believers. There is a place for encouragement. There is a place for edification. But really, we should quite quickly move on from that and not need the approval of people as such. Not need that for our self-esteem because it's coming from a different place. As a young believer, fine. I repeat, fine. Absolutely fine. Because we need encouragement that we're going in the right direction. But as an older person, you should not be seeking still the approval of people because that's not acceptable in God. That's that house there. That's not acceptable to God. It will come down. Key point, KP number two under paragraph two. The best ministry on earth always comes from those who don't need to minister. When somebody doesn't need to do what they do, that's wonderful. It's fantastic because God can get through them and to you, which is what ministry is. But if I find myself driven by some other thing, some other motive, 
then ultimately it's mixed and the result is not good. Not good for you and not good for God, right? And fourthly, driven people, driven by accomplishment. I was thinking yesterday how to put it. They say a young man in a hurry. Have you heard that statement? A young man in a hurry. It's not good to be a young man in a hurry. It's not good to be, in that sense, out to make your mark. I understand it, but it's not good long term. Of course we want to serve God. Of course we want to see good done in the world, but not for your name's sake, right? But for his name's sake. And the self has to decrease. And Christ and his goals and the kingdom have to increase in me. So, think about yourself. Are you driven in the things that you do or are you called by God in them? Firstly, that's the characteristics of someone who's driven. Secondly, what does a called person look like? Well, a called person sees themselves as a steward of the things of God. The the Bible's best example of this is John the Baptist. He was very good, wasn't he? Remember, whenever Jesus came in, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And John was able not just to be involved in ministry, but he was able to step back from ministry when he needed to. And the trouble with Christians very often is when we get a hold of something, we can't let it go. We hold on to it. And that's not sensible because God will ultimately prize the thing from your hand. Please listen, folks, because you'll never move on if you don't. Whatever God gives you, okay? So he's given you a trust. He's given you something to do. Don't close your fist on it. Hold it lightly. Because he may come and take it away. But if this is what you think is your self-esteem, you won't want to let it go. If you take that from me, who am I? What am I? Always keep the hand open and let God take and remove whatever gift is in you, whatever function you have. It's not yours anyway. It's there to serve the body, to serve the church. That's what it's for. So don't take ownership of those things. They belong to the church. But rather be very willing and very open but it's like a child with a rattle. You know when you put the rattle? You know what? That fist closes and you've got to prize that. That's because ultimately they end up getting hurt, don't they? They can't because they're getting their comfort from that rattle. And you have to teach them that that is not the source of your comfort. And that's what it's like for many believers with the first, it's a baby, remember? <laughs> the first ministry God gives us. The first thing that we know it came from God. We take our focus off God. We get our focus on this thing. And like that horse, we're off. Yeah. We're off and we've forgotten the jockey, as it were. We've forgotten the king. True or false? Very true. Very true. So you think about yourself. Think about your life. And how you're behaving in those things. Am I driven or am I called? Number one, a called person will always see themselves as a steward of the things that God has given them. Secondly, called people know who they are. They're secure in that, not in other things. John the Baptist. In fact, let's read that. That's a great scripture. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21. They were asking John who he was. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21. They could see that God was with John, and they got confused. The Pharisees started to ask him, who are you? John 1, 21. They asked him then, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Great, you know, that John knew exactly who he was, where he stood, right? He wasn't confused. And that's who you and I need to be. That's the mindset we need to have. I, 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 to be honest, many of you, I wouldn't normally share this in a church like this, but because many of you are, without a doubt, going to lead churches yourself. Okay? So some of you, Many of you probably in the future are going to be pastors over congregations that will 
spring up around us here in London and in other countries. But I, I, I get very worried and concerned when I listen to people just like you who have a gifting. There it is. Got my rattle. You know it's inside you. And then in order to achieve those goals, we, we go about things the wrong way. Let me give you an example. I'll have pastors in churches, and I go to them. They're leading one of our churches. And the pastor comes to me, or he emailed me and say, Hey, Pastor Mike, God's spoken to me, and I'm going to lead a church in Birmingham. <laughs> okay, right. We need to have a little chat then. Uh, because that's not correct, brother. That's not correct. You can't just do that. But God spoke to me. Yes, God spoke to you, but you don't have the right to obey that. You see? Just listen to me. Trust me. Put your defense down. God's not trying to take it you know, from you in that sense. Let's get back to the book. Do you know why there's so many pastors out there burned out? Stuck in tiny little churches. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So many took a wrong turn. And what I say to brothers like that, because it happens to me constantly, I say, let me tell you something. Scripture says this. All prophecy is subject to the elders. All. Say all. All. All prophecy is to be submitted to the eldership. So if you're telling me God told me to go to Birmingham, you need to bring that to me, because I'm your boss. And you need to submit that to me. This is how it works. Every single one of them. Joseph, Daniel, all of them. If you take that vision, I'm not saying it's not a vision. I'm saying you're going about the achievement of the vision the wrong way. That's what I'm saying to you. So don't get defensive. I'm trying to help. Right? You're in a structure. You're not independent. You're not on your own. Being on your own is dangerous. So what you need to do when you get that word, John Bevere wrote a great book about this called The Bait of Satan. Excellent book, years ago. He was with Benny Hinn. The same thing. He got a word. He went to Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn said no. And Bevere just went off the rails completely and learned a, 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 a very important lesson. I repeat, I wouldn't normally say it, except I know that many of you are going to end up in ministry. So I want to warn you from the beginning. The last time I made a decision, um, it's coming up to probably 20 years ago that I made a decision for myself. If I have any thought, I will bring it to Rick, actually. I'll give you an example. I, I stood in for the pastor in Glasgow uh, about 15 years ago. He went away on holiday. And I stood in and I stood up to preach. And I know what it is to fall in love with a woman. <laughs> but I never fell in love with the church. <laughs> And I stood up and something came over me. Man, I fell in love with that place. I just fell in love with it. And I knew God was calling me there. But I had a, a responsibility for VFC in Ireland at the time. So I went back to Rick and I said, you know, I was over in Glasgow there. And I really believe God, God's called me. I, I've got the vision in me, so I gave it to him. Do you know what he did? <laughs> he took it and ripped it up and threw it over. Get on with your work. Yeah, he did. So quick. Just get on with your work. Get on with what I've given you to do. I'm okay. Okay. I mean love. I mean, my, my heart was full of love. So, what do you do? My God, you know the book. Hallelujah for the book. I know what not to do. So, I went outside. I said, God, no man can stop what God promised. But I don't have the right to disobey. This is the balance of things here. So do you know what, God? The boss says, I've got to get on with my work. And you say, you're sending me to Glasgow. So who do I obey? Don't answer. I obey the boss. And I leave you to deal with the destiny. So I say, do you know what, God? I will continue in my work in Dublin. I will continue. He will never know. There'll be no bad attitude. There'll be no complaints. There will be nothing in me with full sincerity and full diligence. I will continue my work and I will wait for you, my deliverer. Who invented the church? God. Who invented the structure? God. So that's what I did. We then, two years went by. 
two years. And we were traveling in America, actually. We were doing a cross-the-nation tour of churches. Uh, and we were driving one day, Rick and myself, in the car in Los Angeles. And just out of the blue, two years I've been working with my mouth shut. Out of the blue, he turns to me. Oh, yeah, he's on the phone, actually. He's having two conversations. He turns to me and says, I forgot to tell you. See the church we're going to next? This is the pastor I'm giving Glasgow to. Oh, I tell you, I was ready. Pull over! I did, what? And he's having these two conversations. I thought, what? So we go to the church. I remember the massive church, actually. The pastor was called John McLaughlin. And we go into his office and we sit there. And Rick's actually interviewing him in front of me. Do you know how that feels? I sat there listening to this. I thought, listen to this. It's ridiculous. He's interviewing him for my job. So I thought, what do I do? And then I was just a little bit naughty, you know. So I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? You know know what he's like? What? (laughs) Be quiet. Okay. So I said, "Um, Pastor John, I've got a question for you. Do you love Glasgow? Do you love the people of Glasgow and that church? Silence. It was like I hit him with a hammer. But thank God, he thought about it. He said, no. Thank you. I rest my case. (laughs) No, I don't. He said, you know what I'd probably do? I'd probably go to Glasgow for, you know, a year or something like that and then come back. That's fine. We got out in the car and Rick was furious with me. Slammed it over. And he said, okay, he's not the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, And it was a little while later, I can't remember, months later, he said, okay, I'm sending you to Glasgow. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about everything. And I repeat, Glasgow has been the biggest success, inverted commas, that I've ever experienced. We ended up broadcasting in half the world for three years. Hallelujah. And all of that fruit and all of that kingdom stuff required proper submission, understanding the kingdom, understanding how things work, and remaining not just in submission to God, but also in submission to human beings. So when you start hearing from God, that's absolutely fine. But Scripture says, all prophecy is subject to the eldership. Now, I know what you're asking. What happens if the elders got it wrong? That's not your responsibility. It's not my problem. Not my problem. That's his problem. Not my problem. And God himself will work it out What are the statistical chances of me being in that room for that interview? What? A gazillion to one that I should be on the other side of the planet in the room. Wow. See what obedience will do for you? See what submission does? When you submit, when you get it, God will move on your behalf and sort it out for you in a way that you would never dream up or see coming. But when you start dabbling in the things of God, or you're not happy with the church and its structure, or your leader, none of those things are important. See, there's a fundamental confusion, I find, with God and people, Christians' relationship with God. Here's God. Relationship. Oops. You don't need me to tell you God loves you. God, in terms of relationship, it's, it happens one-to-one. But relationship is not authority. Authority has God, apostles, prophets, pastors, and then, sorry, there's you. And we confuse those two understandings, which are both completely biblical, And we start acting on our own. We start becoming independent of a parallel structure that Scripture gives us. And and just, I'm warning you guys, because many of you will end up hearing from God to do something, to lead a ministry, to, to, to have some sort of impact. That's not the most important bit, really. The most important bit is that you bring that word 
into the house where it belongs. And that you, it's, it's hard to do because people can feel passionate about the vision. But you have to do that to be safe and to be secure. And that's where fruit actually comes from. That's where fruit that will last comes from. And everything else, to be honest, it's just, it can be a lot of hype and a lot of stuff and a lot of whatever that men can do. But it's not something that will see an eternal reward, which is critical as we read this morning. Okay? Amen? Thirdly, under that, um, what does a cold person do? A cold person is secure in God and not in their ministry. Sounds simple, but it is, again, very, very important that my security and the security I have comes from him. 50, 30, 20, 20, 30, 50. They estimate that if you study the work of Jesus Christ in Scripture, that he spent 50% of his time alone with God the Father, waiting in his presence. He spent 30 with the key individuals, the apostles and the disciples, and only 20 in any form of public ministry. That was the breakdown. The average pastor today, God gets... Yeah, at best 20%, leaders maybe 30, and pastors run around putting out fires in churches, and that's often why churches are not growing. Because where should the pastor be? (laughs) Jesus, in the presence of God. That's where the pastor should be. And most of his time should be in that place, on his knees before God. Seeking God, finding God, bringing God's heart in. Amen. We'll talk about structure at a later, at a later time. Uh, because it's critical that you understand and we get a, a, a grasp on, on churches in these last days. Building churches, planting churches in the days in which we live. And a lot of worldly structures really or secular structures have infiltrated our mindset. So they expect the pastor to do everything, absolutely everything. And that not only stifles growth within the church, but it stops the church growth. It's a double whammy. It gets us both ways, both directions. But we'll deal with that in future weeks. Is there a correct way then for you to serve God and for me to serve God? Absolutely there is, and it's not as if it's ambiguous. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. You know this. I want to read it again so that you see the point that God is making here. Uh, Excuse my back. Again. Um. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is talking about you and me and guiding us about how to produce a ministry that's acceptable to God. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain. Reward. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That's why prophecy's got to be tested. Brought into the eldership. 
We prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, running after my own ways, obeying things without any submission. When I was a child, I I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Wow. So what are you passionate about? You've got people who are passionate about evangelism. Definitely people who are passionate about worship. People who are passionate about preaching, teaching. The homeless, the Tuesday outreach, you name it. I guarantee you there's people in this room who are passionate about it. Fine. Look at the passions listed here. If I give my body to the flames, so passionate that I would even be martyred, I can do that without love. I can actually do it without love. And if I do it without love, like the the house, I'm deceiving myself. I have nothing. I am nothing, and I gain nothing. Don't be fooled by passion. Listen to me. Look at me. Listen carefully. Don't be fooled by passion. Are you listening? A person lacks self-esteem. God puts a gift in them. They turn away from him, and they put passion into that thing. Because from that thing, what are they getting? Self-esteem. They're dealing with something. You with me? Don't be fooled by passion. It's good, provided it's sanctified. These people, Paul describes, they even become martyrs and yet end up with no reward. Cool. Wow. Wow. I grew up in Belfast with hunger strikers, people starving them to death, who don't know God. We've got suicide bombers. All over the planet. People so passionate for their cause, they'll even kill themselves. And we get deluded, we get confused, thinking because we're so passionate, that's good. Good, but it's a passion that needs to be sanctified, and God must always be the Lord of the work. So ultimately, when all things said and done, You need not only to ask yourself, what am I doing? But you need to ask yourself, more importantly, how am I doing it? What's my motivation? What's behind what I'm doing? And sanctify that motivation. I don't want to scare you, but look at Matthew's Gospel a moment. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Sorry, I don't think I recorded that one. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. And verse 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? There's the gift, right? Did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons? There's a gift of deliverance. And perform many miracles? There is your gift of miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Wow. That's scary. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, right? And people can be saved and forget the Lord of that salvation and leave them behind. So friend, praise the Lord for your abilities, for your giftings that God has given you. Hallelujah. But he's the Lord of those things. He's the master of those things. And this morning I want you to get your eyes in one sense off yourself and firmly onto him. The Lord of the harvest, the master of the harvest, that he may sanctify and guide and purify your motivations and our motivations.
so that collectively we can serve him. Amen? I think of Andrew Womack, what, about 35 years ago? Andrew Womack, he's a great guy. Do you know there was about 30 people in the church? Small group, a bit like us. But Womack decided, a bit like what we're talking about today, he decided, you know what? What's the point? I'm going to die anyway. You know what I'm going to do? Small bunch of people. Why don't we serve God? I've got an idea. got a great idea. Why don't we all purify these hearts and serve God? I wonder what would happen. And what happened was they did. And you know the story. Deaf people got the hearing back. Blind people got the sight back. Cripples walked. And he became famous all over the world. In some ways, his testimony is sad in one sense. Because if you look at the story, there was a time of a three or four year period where there were many miracles, many people traveling to find out what happened. Listen carefully. As the church grew to multiple thousands, the miracles decreased. Yeah, sad, isn't it? And his story is, Jesus would take Peter, James, and John, wouldn't he? He would take the three and work a miracle. Because there was so much doubt, so much sin, so much unbelief in the crowd. Very often he just had to pull the three aside. And so we've got a journey ahead of us, folks. We have a way to go. It's not the distance that bothers me at all. It's not the work that bothers me. It's you. It's your 